Two major CEOs talk about two major issues on Capitol Hill today. First, Senators grill Norfolk Southern Railway's CEO about the toxic derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, March 22nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Also ahead, the CEO of Cambridge-based Moderna answers critics of its plan to quadruple the price of its COVID-19 vaccine. Senators want to know how people are going to be able to afford the price, especially people who are uninsured. You can come up with all the great drugs in the world, we appreciate that, but if people can't access them, they go broke, it doesn't mean anything to those people. Moderna's defense coming up, and scientists have sequenced German composer Beethoven's DNA, offering clues to his life and health. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Federal Reserve is raising interest rates again by another quarter percentage point. NPR's David Gura reports Fed Chair Jerome Powell says he and his colleagues remain committed to getting high inflation under control. And the U.S. banking system, he says, is sound and resilient. Despite the tumult that followed the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, the Federal Reserve decided to move forward with its fight against high inflation, stressing that getting it under control continues to be its number one priority. But Fed Chair Jerome Powell acknowledged there's a lot of uncertainty and it's likely banks will be more conservative when it comes to lending. Fed policymakers say more rate hikes may be necessary. According to their latest projections, policymakers expect another increase, likely another quarter of a percentage point by the end of the year. Although Powell emphasized data will determine what the Fed does going forward. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited military positions near Bakhmut, the epicenter of fighting in eastern Ukraine. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports a frontline town has been the scene of the longest and bloodiest battle since Russia's invasion over a year ago. Zelensky made an unannounced visit to the east, stopping in at a gas station to take selfies with surprised customers in the town of Kostyantinivka, some 18 miles from Bakhmut. In the same town, volunteers, including Ukrainian Orthodox priest Boris Kovalchuk, unloaded donated food from a truck to stock a shelter for civilians fleeing Bakhmut. He calls Zelensky's visit to the area a big morale boost. We are very grateful. The power is shared. Sharing the pain of the people, says Kovalchuk. The president always appears in the hot spots, and that's a positive factor for every citizen of this country. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Kostyantinivka, Ukraine. The security presence is getting bigger at Denver's East High School after another shooting, the second within weeks. Here's school superintendent Alex Moreto. We will have two armed officers here at East until the end of the school year. We're looking forward to expanding that conversation to see how we can uh, reestablish a relationship with presence at our schools, in particular our high schools. Police say two administrators were patting down a student as part of a pre-existing security plan because of the juvenile's troubled history. They say a gun was never detected until today. Police say the student opened fire and fled. He allegedly shot two school staff, one critically. Last month, students staged a protest for more gun safety after one of their classmates was fatally shot near the school's campus. The Dow is down 530 points. You're listening to 
NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healy says she's focused on building a better tea. On WBUR's Radio Boston today, she said she soon plans to name a new MBTA general manager and transportation chief. She also said she wants to fill hundreds of positions for drivers, mechanics, and other MBTA workers. It's also about really going into communities and going uh, to find people who might not have thought about this as a career. And to bring them in and to say, like, look, this can be a great career. Um, It is the case, and it still is the case, that you can start in one position and work your way up. Last week, Healy unveiled her supplemental budget. It included $20 million to help the T recruit and retain workers. Some of that would be used to boost entry-level pay. The state of Massachusetts is reminding pharmacies that they are required by law to stock reproductive health medications and dispense them with a valid prescription. Today's directive comes as several states move to ban abortion medication. Governor Maura Healy says Massachusetts will always protect access to reproductive health care, including abortion. The chair of the Metropolitan Council for Educational Opportunity, or the METCO program, wants $2.8 million more from the state in the next fiscal year. METCO sends more than 3,000 students from Boston to surrounding suburban school districts. Governor Maura Healy's proposed budget keeps funding for the program flat. METCO uh, Chair Patrick Kimball says more money is needed to deal with inflation and to deepen equity work. METCO is a program that really shines light on what opportunity provides the students when given a chance, right, and what those outcomes look like. Kimball says METCO students graduate at a 95 percent rate. That's higher than the graduation rate statewide or for Boston public schools. Some Boston city councilors want to publish an annual list of bad landlords in the city. The list will be made up of property owners who repeatedly violate state and local housing regulations. The landlords would be dubbed scofflaws and would be barred from doing business in the city. Proponents filed a bill this week. It'll be reviewed by the city council's Committee on Government Operations. In the forecast, sure is nice out there right now. We should have clouds moving in later on, though. Not too chilly tonight, about 45 for a low. Tomorrow should be gray and maybe damp. Clouds through the day, the chance of rain in the afternoon, warming all the way to 60 at least. Friday should pull back to the mid-50s, partly sunny skies. And then the weekend should be in the 40s and 50s. Clouds on Saturday, some sunshine on Sunday. 50 degrees now at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The head of Norfolk Southern Railway was back in the hot seat today, being grilled by senators in a hearing focused on the fiery freight train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, last month. Once again, he said his company takes responsibility and will make things right. NPR's David Shaper covered that hearing. Hey there, David. Good afternoon. Hey, so let's set up what came before the testimony today from the Norfolk Southern CEO, Alan Shaw, because senators heard first from Ohio's governor, Mike DeWine, and they also heard from a resident of East Palestine. What did they say about how uh, the community is still being affected now, what, almost seven weeks after the train went off the tracks? Yeah, Mary Louise, uh, Misty Allen says that after the train derailed, she could see this huge fireball from her driveway. And she says the controlled burn of toxic vinyl chloride a couple of days later was again like a bomb going off. She says even though state and federal health officials say the air and the water is all safe, 
Many are worried in that town about the potential long-term health effects. My seven-year-old has asked me if he is going to die from living in his own home. What do I tell him? Allison went on to say that her community now has a scarlet letter on it. People don't want to come there. Businesses are struggling. Home values are plummeting. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine uh, echoed those concerns, and he joined the hearing remotely from the East Palestine High School Library. Mm -hmm. He said that at 8.55 on that Friday night, February 3rd, life in East Palestine stopped being normal. And many people there continue to leave, live in fear for their safety and for their futures. Members of the committee, Norfolk Southern has an obligation to restore this community. It was their train, their tracks, their accident. They're responsible for this tragedy. All right. So that's the governor. What did the CEO, what did Alan Shaw say? Yeah, well, as he has said before, he says he's terribly sorry for this environmental disaster. He knows it's been traumatic and that his company is now setting up funds to address long term concerns, including health care, property values and monitoring the water. To date, Shaw says the railway company has already paid out about twenty four million dollars in reimbursements and cleanup costs, among other things. And he says that's just the beginning. But, you know, some people in East Palestine say that it's not always clear what costs are being covered and, and what won't be. And they, they, they want more clarity. OK, so all of this testimony today was unfolding before Congress, which is considering stricter safety regulations for the freight train industry, including mm -hmm. some measures that have been opposed by railroads in the past. Is the industry changing its tune at all on that? Well, a, a little bit. Shaw says Norfolk Southern will support legislative efforts to enhance the rails, uh, rail safety. But he spoke in broad general terms and washed, waffled a little bit on specifics. When he was pressed by Democratic Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts on whether he'd support legislation requiring two-person train cars at a minimum, he was actually quite evasive. Senator, we'll, we'll commit to using research and technology to assure the railroad operates safely. Will you commit to a, a two-person crew on all trains? Senator, we're a data-driven organization, and I'm not aware of any data that links crew size with safety. And there was a railroad safety official there who disputed that, saying if this had just been a one-person crew on that train in East, East Palestine, the results could have been much more disastrous. Thank you, David. Thank you. And Pierre's David Shaper. Many schools across the country are grappling with teacher shortages. And Pierre's Corey Turner has been looking into some of the hardest-hit school systems and what they're doing about it. Today on Morning Edition, we heard about some extra challenges that big city districts face in attracting and keeping teachers. And now, Corey's got the story of a big idea that is helping districts all over the country grow their own teachers. All right, dun dun dun, dun. I think we're ready. Lots of states have these grow-your-own programs. Illinois, Texas, Tennessee. But I'm going to focus on Mississippi's and the impact it's having in the state capital, Jackson. All right, let's build some words. First grade teacher Kimberly Pate is 52 and worked for nearly two decades in Jackson schools as a classroom assistant. As a paraprofessional, of course, the pay is peanuts. So I was working literally two full-time jobs to make ends meet. With four children of her own, Pate couldn't afford to go back to college to become a fully licensed teacher. That is, until she was offered a slot in something called the Mississippi Teacher Residency. The pitch was hard to believe. She'd get a fully paid-for master's degree and a better salary. And Pate could be a student while still working full-time. If it wasn't a full salary, I don't think I will be able to do it. 
but it was, and she did, and soon she'll have her master's degree plus dual certification in elementary and special education, both in critically short supply here. <laughs> it's like, how, how could you pass that up? Like many big city districts, Jackson, Mississippi has a teacher shortage, though it's not particularly new. On average, the district loses one in five teachers every year. The pay doesn't help, with Mississippi ranking near the bottom nationally. Jackson also struggles with poverty and a years-long water crisis. This is why the Mississippi Department of Education is focusing its residency program in Jackson and other hard-to-staff districts across the state. What about this? Uh, oh, mm. In return for her degree, Kimberly Pate agreed to keep teaching in Jackson for at least three years. Judging by the way her first graders smile and laugh and work hard at her silly phonics games, that's a win for them too. Listen to it. NT, Keegan, NT. Come here, Keegan. Come to the board, Keegan. Come on, boy. Come on, Keegan. Eighteen full-fledged Jackson teachers have already come out of the residency program, and about as many are on their way. Jennifer Carter got her master's in December, and already she's the educator equivalent of a Swiss Army knife. Carter is an in-demand special education teacher by day, and by night, or at least before and after school, she does another hard-to-fill job. Bus driver. There's also elementary school teacher Jonah Thomas. He's just 22 in a crisp black shirt, the sleeves short enough to show his brother's name, Jonathan, tattooed on his right arm. Thomas studied economics in college. When they came around, I was still looking for accounting jobs and stuff like this. So if it weren't for this program, I wouldn't even be a teacher. But he is, dapping up kids in the cafeteria as they rush to greet him. Morning, 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 Kylie. LJ. See, the Mississippi teacher residency isn't just about lifting up folks who are already working in schools. It's also about reaching college grads like Thomas, who'd never considered teaching. What's the word? The. Districts across the U.S. know they have to expand the pool of potential teachers somehow. While Thomas is inexperienced, he knows firsthand the power of great teaching. I watched my mom teach growing up as a little boy. She treated other kids like they were her kids. I remember being jealous sometimes. <laughs> I was that type of child. Thomas says taking master's level classes while also working has been exhausting, but also kind of amazing. Everything that we learn, we can apply to our classroom. Like we have classes sometimes where we may learn Wednesday, we can come to the school and apply it Thursday. This fast-track training program is also meant to diversify the teacher force because students can benefit a lot from seeing themselves reflected in their teachers. Young black men like Jonah Thomas are rare in teaching, especially at the elementary school level. Now that he's in the classroom and nearly done with his master's, how does he feel? This program saved me. One of the ideas that is central to Grow Your Own Programs, as the name suggests, is that candidates be personally invested in the communities where they teach. Ideally, they're local, not just parachuting in from the outside. 61-year-old pastor Dwayne Williams attended Jackson Public Schools as a child. Now, he's teaching second graders. 
He bought an ice cream cone from the shopkeeper. Hmm, he thought. Mr. D, as he's known, sports a short, graying beard and suspenders. The kids are clearly having fun as he helps them prep for a multiple choice test. Is it B? No! A is correct. No! William says he hadn't planned on becoming a full-time teacher at his age. I just thought I was just going to substitute a couple of days a week, but I became passionate about it. William says he understands the toll that poverty can take on families that are doing everything they can to escape it. A lot of the parents are working three and four jobs, so they are not at home to raise children. So who is raising the children? Children are. In addition to teaching some 30 second graders, Williams has also started a mentoring program. If there's a problem in the classroom with one of the students, they'll send them to me. We sit, we talk. And you may not change everybody, but you can change somebody. Jennifer Carter says one of the things she enjoys about being a special educator is supporting students who she says are acting out in class because they need help reading or understanding math, but they're too embarrassed to ask. They would rather be the problem child than the child that has a problem they, they can't work through. Carter says when she was younger, she never expected to go to college, let alone earn a master's degree. And Kimberly Pate says if it weren't for the Mississippi Teacher Residency, she likely wouldn't be where she is now either. Can Gwendolyn come up and help you? I think so. You think so? Awesome. In her own classroom, teaching children how to read, one little win at a time. All right, here we go. What's the first sound, Gwendolyn? Paint. Paint. Awesome! Y'all did good! So both of y'all get a treat. Pate's first graders smile on the edge of their chairs. It's hard work reading. But they know they have Ms. Pate, and she's not going anywhere. You ready? I need you to blow me away. Corey Turner, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up in just about 20 minutes, the CEO of Cambridge-based Moderna defends the decision to quadruple the price of the COVID-19 vaccine once it hits the open market. And then at 4.50, what's the secret recipe to a sweet 16 run in college basketball? Has to do with coaching culture and longevity. That's coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. On Wall Street, the Federal Reserve hiked interest rates a quarter of a point, and Wall Street slipped in response. The Dow and the S&P and NASDAQ all lost one and six-tenths percent. The Fed's move and the market slip coming up on Marketplace tonight starting at 6.30. Starbucks workers in Somerville joined a nationwide strike this morning. They walked off the job and demonstrated for two hours. The strikers want wage increases and better workplace safety. Workers at the Somerville location are attempting to unionize. About 100 stores across the country took part in the strike today. A Starbucks spokesperson said the company is open to negotiations, but it says the union representing workers has delayed the process by setting preconditions on talks. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. Stanhopeframers.com. 
pretty nice out there today. Overnight tonight, cloudy, breezy in the mid-40s, not too chilly. Tomorrow, cloudy. Chance of rain in the afternoon, breezy and mild, right about 60. And then Friday, partly sunny skies, right about 35 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. After the U.S. invasion of Iraq, which began 20 years ago this week, one city would become known to Americans as the epicenter of the Iraqi insurgency, Fallujah. Vast areas of the city were leveled into huge battles between insurgents and U.S. troops. Years later, ISIS would take it over and be driven out in another destructive fight in 2016. Well, NPR's Ruth Sherlock visited there a few days ago and saw a very different city, though memories of the violence remain. It is a strange experience driving into Fallujah. All I've heard about this place is the stories of refugees, of the city destroyed. And here we are, and there's cheerful restaurants, shops, these gleaming new buildings, construction projects. We've arrived at a construction site to interview real estate magnate Sarhan al-Isawi. Welcome on Fallujah. Isawi invites us into his office and through our interpreter he lays out the scale of the project. Uh, this complex looks like a small city. It contains all services from 24 hours electricity, security, uh, schools, and nursery schools, and uh, clinics. A brightly colored print of the design of the project hangs on the wall of Asawi's office. It shows 14 apartment buildings, 11 stories each, separated by parks lined with trees. He's putting some $27 million of his own money into the project. I ask him, isn't it a risk to invest so much money in a place with such a recent history of war? I used to be a soldier, so I don't mind taking risks, he quips. But then he gets serious. Uh, we are full sure that this project will succeed. He says there's a desire among Fallujah residents for new things, for a new way of life. He says many of the apartments have been bought already, even before being finished. One reason for this, he says, is the Iraqi government is offering people cheap mortgages as an incentive. Iraq's parliament speaker, Mohammed al-Halbousi, is the former governor of Fallujah's Anbar province and also a construction mogul. Issawi says Halbousi has helped direct government funds to redevelop the region, starting with the some 120 bridges destroyed in the repeated conflicts. 
We leave Asari's construction site and drive around to get more of a sense of the city now and the violent history here. Past a furniture shop with gold painted armchairs and sofas. Passing the Happy Land Ferris Wheel and amusement park. So you can hear the children playing in the courtyard of this school, Al Khariij school. And back in 2003, this was a key place in the war in Iraq. The first US divisions arrived in Fallujah on the 23rd of April 2003. They took over this school. Residents gathered outside the school walls, asking the Americans to leave, saying that they wanted to reopen the school for students. The protests grew large, and what happened next is contested. But ultimately, US soldiers opened fire into the crowd, killing 17 people and wounding more than 70. That was the spark for further violence. Two battles ensued, and the conflicts that took place here marked a turning point in the war in Iraq between US troops fighting loyalists of Saddam Hussein and an insurgency against the US occupation of Iraq. The eve of battle. Footage filmed by the BBC in 2004 shows US Marines about to enter Fallujah. The colonel in charge prepares his troops to fight their way into the city on foot. The enemy has got a face. He's called Satan and he's in Fallujah. And we're going to destroy him. We go and meet one of the men who was fighting against the US. Dafar al welcomes us into his home. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. An imam in a local mosque, he opens with a small prayer before telling us how, in 2004, he organized militias to fight the Americans. We became big groups and we collect what we have from uh, weapons that we get at that time. During these shelling attacks, during the battles, what did the city sound like? What did it look like? He remembers, the shelling was so intense, it was hard to believe any of them would survive. These days, the neighborhood is totally different. Children are walking home from school unaccompanied, playing in the streets. Two small children are trying to ride a bi- an adult bicycle that's far too big for them. I'm an English teacher. We walk into a girls' school and meet English teacher Suad Mickey. She tells me about living under the extremist group ISIS when they took over in 2014 and the war to remove them. No food, bomb, military. Yes, terrible. I feel afraid all the time, especially when my children were so little. But now ISIS has gone and the city has relative calm. Mickey says her family is finally happier. Sometimes they walk along the city's new promenade on the Euphrates River. Her children are enjoying school and she is teaching again. You're teaching the next generation of Iraqis, of people from Fallujah. How do you see now the future for uh, Fallujah? For I hope it will be better. I hope. I hope it will be better. Do you feel like it will be better or you don't have trust in the future? No, I don't trust the future, but I hope. After years of conflict and instability, it's hard for her to believe that this peace will last. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Fallujah.
1998, the young boy's parents decided to take him and move the family out of Iraq. He grew up to become a Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist living in the U.S. After the tough sanctions that first forced his family out, and then after 20 years of war, he decided to return to Iraq to see how much of his country was the same and what was different. On All Things Considered tomorrow, we'll speak with that photographer about what he discovered in the homeland that he left behind. To listen to that conversation, just turn on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play your member station by name. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR, coming up in about 10 minutes on All Things Considered, what's revealed in Beethoven's DNA. In sports, Red Sox take on the Minnesota Twins in spring training tonight. Tanner Houck gets the start for Boston. The New England Patriots have re-signed defensive back Jalen Mills five days after the team released him. Multiple media reports say the deal is for one year and up to $6.1 million. Mills could help fill the void left by the retirement of veteran safety Devin McCourty. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Economics at Boston College, providing an industry-aligned curriculum on campus, online, or hybrid, bc.edu slash msae, and Boston Ballet's Don Quixote, returning for the first time in more than 10 years, on stage now through the 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Artificial intelligence can create original material in a matter of seconds, which is just what makes some people worry. A bad actor can take one of these tools and use this to make unimaginable amounts of really plausible, almost terrifying misinformation that the average person is not going to recognize as misinformation. The Dark Side of AI, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Former President Donald Trump may not face indictment this week. NPR's Andrea Bernstein reports the grand jury in New York City has been canceled for today, according to a person familiar with the probe. On Saturday, former President Donald Trump said he expected to be arrested on Tuesday. But Tuesday came and went, and now word comes the grand jury, which meets Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, will not meet Wednesday, and maybe not for the rest of the week. Grand jury proceedings are secret, but people familiar with the process tell NPR the rescheduling could be because of the logistics of charging a former president. We do know the grand jury is looking into whether Donald Trump committed a crime by directing hush money to be paid to an adult film actor, which could be a felony in New York with a maximum prison sentence of four years. Trump has denied wrongdoing. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York. A police officer in Germany was shot and injured during a nationwide raid of a far-right group. As NPR's Rob Schmitz reports, it was the second raid of a group that's accused of planning to overthrow the German government. A spokeswoman for the federal prosecutor's office says the searches were centered around five suspects and others connected to them. 
This is the second nationwide raid of the homes and offices of those who belong to the so-called Reichsbürger. The group rejects the legitimacy of Germany's federal government and aims to overthrow it. 25 people connected to the group who are planning a violent coup remain in custody from a nationwide raid in December. That's NPR's Rob Schmitz reporting from Berlin. The central bank raised interest rates by a quarter point today. It's the ninth increase in a year as the Federal Reserve tries to bring the rate of inflation down. And stocks closed sharply lower today on Wall Street. The Dow was down 530 points. The Nasdaq fell 190. This is NPR News. In Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. There are lead paint concerns in Chelsea. People in the city are finding paint chips that have flaked off the Tobin Bridge and landed in streets and yards. Chelsea found the debris contains a high amount of lead. WBUR's Paula Maura has more. Lead exposure can damage the brain and nervous system. So the environmental advocacy group Green Roots is telling people not to touch the paint chips barehanded or let children have contact with them. Roseanne Bongiovanni with the group says the ground is covered with them for three blocks near the bridge. What we really want to see is that the bridge is fully deleted, that all of those paint chips are removed from our neighborhoods, that any contaminated soil is removed and remediated and replaced with clean soil. The State Department of Transportation says it will inspect the area and develop an immediate removal plan. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moura. The first zero-emission geothermal greenhouse in Massachusetts is up and running. Today, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu paid a visit to the project in East Boston. She hailed it as a model for how to address global climate change locally. WBUR's Barbara Moran has more. At today's ribbon-cutting, Mayor Wu pointed to a new UN report, which warns that the world's climate is near a tipping point, and the time to act urgently is now. Which means people are looking around saying, what are the ways that we can do things differently and better and faster and more with community? And they're looking right here to this geothermal greenhouse for Eastie Farms in East Boston. The greenhouse will grow food for local residents and also capture rainwater to help prevent flooding in the neighborhood. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Massachusetts U.S. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey want the Federal Reserve to strengthen rules for mid-sized banks. Today, they and several other Democratic senators wrote a letter to the Fed to recommend it exercise stronger oversight. The group says the fall of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank illustrates the importance of banks with assets of $100 to $250 billion to the country's financial system. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington with Clyde's, the joyous comedy from Pulitzer recipient Lynn Nottage at The Huntington, March 24th through April 23rd, huntingtontheater.org. Hope you've enjoyed today because the sun's likely to take tomorrow off. For tonight, cloudy, breezy in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, lots of clouds around, chance of rain in the afternoon, breezy and mild, right about 60. And then Friday, should see some sunshine burning through the clouds, right about 53 degrees in the mid-40s to low 50s over the weekend. Still 50 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm. Whether browsing online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. And from IFC Films with The Lost King. From the makers of Philomena comes the story of an amateur historian who believes she has found the lost burial site of England's notorious Richard III. 
only in theaters March 24th. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. On a Wednesday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Moderna has announced plans to quadruple the price of its COVID-19 vaccine once the U.S. government is no longer the exclusive buyer. Today, a Senate committee grilled the company's CEO, Stefan Bonsell, on the planned hike. NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin is here to fill us in. Hey, Sydney. Hi, Elsa. Hi. Okay, so what I don't get is Pfizer's also raising its COVID Mm -hmm. vaccine price, right? Like, why is Moderna's CEO the one getting all the tough questions right now? It's a really good question because, yes, both companies are planning to increase their vaccine prices. But Moderna got a lot of money and help from the federal government that Pfizer didn't for things like the early stages of research and development. In fact, government scientists say they co-invented the Moderna vaccine, which Moderna disagrees with. The government also agreed to spend billions on doses, even if the Moderna vaccine ultimately failed and wasn't approved by the FDA. The point was to take on the risk so Moderna could go full steam ahead while the pandemic raged. Senator Bernie Sanders, who chairs the Senate Health Committee, started the hearing by saying he's grateful for the work Moderna did, but he was quick to pivot to accusing Moderna of corporate greed. This vaccine would not exist without NIH's partnership and expertise and the substantial investment of the taxpayers of this country. He talked about how Bonsell and other Moderna executives basically became billionaires overnight, only to thank the taxpayers by hiking the price of the vaccine. Hmm. Well, what did Bonsell have to say about raising the price of the COVID vaccine? He mainly said the vaccine's price was based on its value, how many people wouldn't die or be hospitalized because they'd been vaccinated. He also said moving from bulk government purchases to a commercial market is more costly for Moderna to make and distribute the vaccine. So, for example, he said they're moving from 10 doses in a vial to single dose vials. But the current vaccine is estimated to cost less than $3 a dose to make. And obviously, the company was already making billions of dollars in profits a year on the old vaccine price. Right. And the new price is reportedly $130 a dose. What does that mean for all of us when we get our next shots? So if you have insurance or Medicare, that should cover it. You shouldn't see any change at the pharmacy counter. For the uninsured, that's an open question. Mm. The company says it will launch a patient assistance program that would make the vaccine free. But the senators asked a lot of questions about the details because those programs can be so cumbersome that they wind up being a barrier to people getting vaccinated. Bonsell said Moderna is still working on it and they're gearing up for a fall campaign to publicize that option for the uninsured. Now, somebody has to pay. Some of the senators said that behind the scenes, insurers and the government, taxpayers, will still be purchasing the vaccine and it's going to cost a lot more money. So ultimately, Sydney, does it seem like senators will be able to get Moderna to lower the price? They don't have much leverage beyond the bully pulpit. Bonsell didn't commit to much of anything on price, even though he was asked a few times to reconsider. Several pharmaceutical policy experts in a panel afterwards said the government's best chance to have gotten a better price commitment from Moderna was in the original contract three years ago. And that simply didn't happen. Simply didn't happen. That is NPR's Sydney Lupkin. Thank you, Sydney. You bet. So there's this letter that Beethoven, the great classical composer, wrote to his brothers when he was in his early 30s. He rails against his deafness and asks that his various health problems be described after his death. Well, a new study does just that. Science reporter Ari Daniel has more. 
When he was a kid, Tristan Begg listened to all kinds of music. ACDC, Led Zeppelin, Mozart, ragtime blues. But then came Christmas 2007, when Begg was 17. One of his presents was a record player. And when he dropped the needle on this, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, his world would never be the same. It was the first dun, dun, dun. I had to catch myself, stop myself from uh, crying. That sparked this obsession, both with the music and with the man. That obsession inspired Begg to later pursue a master's project in Germany, one involving a hunt for evidence that Beethoven's afflictions had a genetic basis, the first being his hearing loss, the second a set of debilitating gastrointestinal issues. These were attacks of often, he describes, violent diarrhea. And finally, there was Beethoven's liver disease, involving jaundice and bean-sized nodules in his liver. That seems to have been the, the primary cause of his death. Begg first had to get his hands on Beethoven's DNA, which he managed to do. Ancient DNA from locks of hair, likely from the 1800s, and supposedly originating from the great composer's head. Your genome starts out in these enormous stretches of DNA. The average fragment length we were getting from these hairs was about 15 nucleotides long. Which is super short. Begg had to sequence Beethoven's entire genome from those fragments. So you have to use some of the most advanced ancient DNA techniques in the world. But the results were depressing. Those three lots of hair came from three different people. I thought the project had failed. Begg moved on to the University of Cambridge to do a PhD in biological anthropology on a different topic altogether. But then a few new locks of hair surfaced, all originating from the same person, who almost certainly was Ludwig von Beethoven. Suddenly, the project had a pulse again. Begg focused on sequencing the best-preserved sample, which he then surveyed for evidence of disease. First, there was his deafness, which, alas, didn't turn up anything conclusive. Then there were the GI troubles. We did find that he was modestly protected against irritable bowel syndrome. And that he was likely not lactose or gluten intolerant, so nothing definitive there either. But then, Begg looked into possible causes of liver disease. One gene in particular leapt out. It would have roughly tripled his risk for developing the full spectrum of liver disease. The gene's not too concerning on its own, but... It does become a problem if you're drinking substantial quantities of alcohol which Beethoven probably did. Plus, Begg found other DNA in his hair shafts from hepatitis B virus. This is globally one of the major causes of cirrhosis and liver cancer. And all three factors, the gene, the drinking, and the hepatitis B, they would have all interacted. It really comes as no surprise he died of, of cirrhosis at the age of 56. Begg and his colleagues published their findings in the journal Current Biology. George Church, a molecular technologist at the Harvard Medical School who wasn't involved in the project, says it's solid research. He just wished the DNA had yielded more answers. Yeah, I think the disappointing thing was the lack of explanation for hearing loss. It's not the fault of the authors, it's the fault of the specimens. For some, this study helps bring the composer to life. Toronto-based concert pianist Luke Welsh says it lays bare that the man's physical struggle was real, something he feels when playing Beethoven's music. The demand he puts on the performer are really extreme. You really have to fight through certain passages to make it as cohesive as he wants. And is there beauty in the struggle? 
The beauty is the struggle. As for Tristan Begg, he says now that his genetic opus has published, it'll be Beethoven's third symphony, the Eroica, that he'll listen to first. Your feelings are in the best hands. And I wonder whether Beethoven might have thought that his locks of hair, his DNA, have been in some pretty good hands too. For NPR News, I'm Ari Daniel. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In a dramatic turnabout, it appears Michigan is about to repeal its so-called right-to-work law. The state legislature approved that repeal this week. It's a big win for unions in a state that is considered a cradle of the labor movement. We have more from Michigan Public Radio's Rick Pluta. Michigan has a storied union history, including battles to organize auto plants going back to the 1930s. And then labor became a powerful political force in the state. So it was a gut punch to labor when the Republican-led state legislature in 2012 voted to make Michigan a right-to-work state. And it was quickly signed by a Republican governor. So union activists were thrilled as they witnessed a legislature controlled now by Democrats voting to repeal Michigan's right-to-work law and sending it to Governor Gretchen Whitmer. The Democratic governor has made scrapping the law a priority. It's huge. Michigan AFL-CIO President Ron Bieber says this is a day he's been waiting for and working toward for over a decade. Choose for the entire labor movement nationally to have a victory for working people and make progress for a change. Right-to-work laws allow workers in a union shop to opt out of paying union dues. Unions often call that the, quote, right to freeload because those workers can get many of the benefits of union membership without actually belonging to the union. This is the first time in nearly six decades that a state legislature has voted to repeal a right-to-work law. Republican State Senator Thomas Albert says repealing right-to-work is a mistake. He says it should be up to workers to decide whether they want to be part of a union and also that it will be bad for business. Businesses that are already here aren't going to want to grow. And businesses that are looking to develop and find a good place to work and and, um, establish some roots, they're going to go somewhere else. That's a false choice, says Democratic State Representative Regina Weiss, who sponsored one of the right-to-work repeal bills. You don't have to choose to support business and then also choose to screw over workers. You can support business, you can support workers at the same time. And supporting workers actually also helps support investments into our economy. The bigger danger is uncertainty, says Sandy Baruja. He's the president of the Detroit Regional Chamber. It's a business group, but one of its stated missions is promoting harmonious union management relationships. He says businesses consider right to work to be a net gain, but the state needs to be consistent. Consistency in itself is hugely important. But Baruja says Michigan isn't consistent, and fostering more stability in taxes and other costs, for example, would help counter the effects of repealing right to work. We change from governor to governor, uh, sometimes even within a governor's period of time that he or she is in office. Baruja says shifting with the political winds puts Michigan at a disadvantage against red states like Texas, Tennessee, and South Carolina and higher-tax blue states like Massachusetts. Michigan Democrats' legislative majorities are very, very thin, one vote apiece in the House and the Senate. 
control could easily shift in the future. Also, some right-to-work advocates are considering a ballot drive to reverse what the legislature just did and ask voters to put a right-to-work amendment in the Michigan Constitution. For NPR News, I'm Rick Pluta in Lansing, Michigan. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up in just about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by a quarter percentage point today, and Wall Street stocks took a slide. And coming up in about five minutes, the lasting effect of kind words from a stranger. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord. Owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. Jump into a new season with a reinvigorated reading list. Check out our arts and culture team's Spring Books Guide. It's right now at WBUR.org. Overnight tonight, not too chilly, about 45 for a low. Tomorrow should be gray and maybe damp. Clouds through the day, chance of rain in the afternoon, warming all the way to 60 degrees at least. 50 now in Boston at 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Into the Woods. Coming to Boston direct from Broadway and with its Broadway stars to boot, two weeks only, now through April 2nd. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, from Nubian Square to the South End, Malcolm X spent years in Boston learning, listening to jazz, and honing his message. We uncover how neighborhoods here influenced the revolutionary and explore the ways the city has and has not embraced him. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Well, March Madness took on another dimension this week. More Division I basketball players entered the transfer portal this year than any other. Last year, 21,000 athletes across all Division I sports did the same thing. And all of this creates turbulence on college campuses, turbulence that some campuses are better prepared to handle than others, according to Graham Honecker, who looks at the cultures of small schools in his book, The Syndrome. Cinderella Strategy. Graham Honecker joins us now. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Elsa. It's an honor to be with you today. Oh, it's so great to have you. Can we just start by talking about coaches? Because, you know, once upon a time, a school and a coach went hand in hand, right? Like it's what attracted athletes to certain programs. And in this year's Sweet 16, there are maybe, what, only two of those schools left? I'm talking about Gonzaga with Mark Few and Michigan State with Tom Izzo. I guess a third could be Houston and Kelvin Sampson. But Tell me, what Mm -hmm. is it about their style of coaching that you think leads to results like making the Sweet 16? You know, big focus for us, my my co-author Jerry Logan and I, in our our second book, Unbracketed, is continuity. Mm -hmm. So a coach has to build a culture, but there's a massive turnover of coaches. There's the temptation of a coach who's coming off of a big run in the Sweet 16, a Cinderella story. Well, the bigger schools scoop them up, and they don't have a chance to sustain that culture in a a Mark Few, you know, who's really a tremendous servant leader, has really put his roots down at Gonzaga. And he's an amazing story of longevity. Tom Izzo, too, of 
you know, coaches who have, you know, they have stayed and they've built something sustainable. And there's a reason they're in the tournament uh, every year and, and they make runs every year. You say the word culture. Tell me more about that. Like, how does the wider culture at a whole school help shape the style of coaching that we see in a Tom Izzo or a Mark Few? In some cases, there's century old traditions that are the foundations for the culture. For instance, you've got Gonzaga and you've got Loyola as Jesuit institutions focusing on the the whole person. You have Villanova, they've got a credo of unselfishness that goes back centuries in the Augustinian faith. And, you know, these coaches play on that that culture. Here at Butler University, where I work, uh, we have something called the Butler Way, which gained a lot of prominence uh, when we went to back-to-back Final Fours, again, on teamwork, unselfishness, unity. But there's an ethos that crosses across the campus. I want to touch upon all of these transfers that we mentioned at the top of this conversation. How do all of these transfers and attempted transfers by players through the portal, how is all of that destabilizing the student-athlete experience and the culture? I think it's really, really challenging. I think a lot of coaches would tell you right now that, uh, you know, in the past it was when the season ended, you were focused on getting out there in the summer and going to camps. Now, first and foremost, it is re-recruiting your team. Mm. In terms of the the stabilization, I think it's unfortunate because in some areas it's become a revolving door of players leaving. And I think it's just a, a disjointed experience right now for those student athletes, some of which, you know, again, I totally respect wanting better opportunities, but I think some are finding that the grass isn't always greener in, in terms of leaving their uh, their current location. I'm curious, with the Sweet 16 coming up this weekend, how surprised are you that some of the findings from your last two books are showing up on the court during this tournament? I'm not surprised at all. The attributes of some of the smaller Cinderella schools that we've studied are absolutely there in terms of continuity in some of the coaches that have been there, cohesiveness, teams that have been together for a while. Um, When you think about a Princeton who haven't had many players transfer out nor in, the unselfishness, uh, passing the ball, moving the ball around, Mm. getting the better shot, and then toughness. You know, really it comes down to toughness as well. And um, scrappy, hard-nosed teams, we saw it with Fairleigh Dickinson, uh, beating Purdue, I'm not surprised at all. It's it's a beautiful tournament because, again, it's not only the Goliaths that always win, it, it's often the Davids. Graham Honecker. His two books are called The Cinderella Strategy and Unbracketed. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you today. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Laura Holmes Haddad. In March of 2017, Laura was undergoing chemotherapy for stage four breast cancer. She was 37 years old. She had two small children. One day, she went for an x-ray at a large hospital in San Francisco. I got x-rays and scans constantly, so it was nothing new to me. But I was getting used to the anonymous feeling of being a patient, just a medical record number, shivering in a white and blue hospital gown and scratchy blue hospital socks. And I was completely bald. I was still adjusting to life without hair and feeling very self-conscious. And I didn't wear a wig, but I wouldn't go outside my house without my headscarf. But in the x-ray room, I had to take off my scarf. 
And I was so upset and distraught about being bald in front of a stranger. But the x-ray tech, a man, was bald also, which made me feel a little bit better. He was average height, wearing scrubs, and he had very kind blue eyes. And he was very gentle with me as he helped me onto the table and adjusted the weighted vest. And what stood out the most was his melodic Irish accent. And he just emanated kindness. And I'm not sure what came over me, but as I was lying down on my back, waiting for the x-ray and holding my scarf, I told the man that people stared at me and how much it upset me. And I hadn't prepared for that with cancer. I hadn't prepared for the staring. And he looked at me right in the eyes and said something that took my breath away. He said, they're staring at you because you're beautiful. And it was said with such kindness and sincerity that it still stays with me today. I might have asked his name at the time, but with chemo brain and years that have passed, I've forgotten it. I hope he is listening. His innate kindness that day made a terrified cancer patient feel, well, beautiful. Laura Holmes Haddad is a writer living in West Tisbury, Massachusetts. She's now been in remission for a decade. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you listen to podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Angie. Angie's list is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Angie. Angie's list is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina, or from all agents. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. 50 degrees. It's been a gorgeous day today. Should have a cloudy night coming up tonight. Not too chilly, about 45 degrees for a low. Then for tomorrow, overcast skies through the day. Maybe a damp day as well. Clouds, chance of rain in the afternoon, warming all the way to 60 at least tomorrow. Friday should pull back to the mid-50s with partly sunny skies. And then the weekend should be in the 40s and 50s. Clouds on Saturday, some sunshine on Sunday. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. 
I'm WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. No surprise, but the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by a quarter percentage point today. The Fed is moving forward with its fight against inflation after it took significant steps to contain a banking crisis. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, March 22nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a GOP retreat reinvigorated the Republican majority's plans to push forward with partisan bills from education to the budget to immigration. The budget and debt ceiling are all very important economic fiscal issues. And I would say that the House Republicans have been fundamentally underestimated. We'll have more on the GOP's agenda. And a student at a Denver high school who is being checked for weapons pulled out a gun and shot two administrators, according to police, their condition, and much more coming up. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The interest rate-setting Federal Reserve has again moved on short-term interest rates at the end of its two-day meeting in Washington, with central bank policymakers indicating they may be closer to the end than the beginning of the interest rate-raising cycle. Meanwhile, Federal Reserve Board Chair Jerome Powell also sought to reassure markets on the resilience of the banking sector. Our banking system is sound and resilient, with strong capital and liquidity. We will continue to closely monitor conditions in the banking system and are prepared to use all of our tools as needed to keep it safe and sound. Still not clear whether the problems for the sector are over, though. The Fed has warned the collapse of two major banks in recent days will likely result in tighter credit conditions. The central bank raised rates by a quarter of a point. The Department of Homeland Security is ramping up efforts to stop fentanyl trafficking at the U.S.-Mexico border. NPR's Joel Rose reports the agency's announced a new campaign dubbed Operation Blue Lotus. Homeland Security officials say the new effort will use scanning technology and drug-sniffing dogs at ports of entry, where the vast majority of fentanyl seizures occur. DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas says it comes in response to a rise in overdoses and accidental poisonings from the synthetic opioid, which he called the drug of death. We are matching this unprecedented challenge with unprecedented solutions. Mayorkas announced the new effort at the port of entry in Nogales, Arizona, which has surpassed San Diego in recent months as the top gateway for fentanyl smuggling. DHS is spending hundreds of millions of dollars on new scanning machines, but fentanyl remains hard to detect because the pills are small and easy to conceal. Joel Rose, NPR News. Former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is defending parties held during the pandemic when such gatherings were banned by his own government, saying he thought they were work events. As NPR's Frank Lankford reports from London, Johnson faces an inquiry over whether he lied to Parliament. Referring to when going away party attended, Johnson said it was essential to thank and motivate staff. Alan Dorans, a lawmaker with the Scottish National Party, pointed out that a photo of the event revealed bottles of alcohol on the table. Would you say that that is strictly necessary for a work event? It's, it's customary to uh, say farewell to people in this country with a toast. A parliamentary committee grilled Johnson for hours, trying to determine if he knowingly lied when he first claimed the gatherings broke no rules. If the committee finds against Johnson, lawmakers could suspend him or even kick him out of parliament. 
Frank Langford, NPR News, London. Manhattan prosecutors have postponed a scheduled grand jury session in the investigation into Donald Trump over hush money payments during his 2016 presidential campaign. That's according to people familiar with the matter who insisted on anonymity to discuss an ongoing investigation. It's not clear when and if an indictment might be forthcoming. Stocks plunged on Wall Street today, the Dow down 530 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts officials are reaffirming the state's commitment to ensuring access to abortion services, including abortion pills. Today, the state's Board of Registration and Pharmacy issued clarifying guidance. More from WBUR's Steve Brown. The guidance informs pharmacies they must carry and dispense all reproductive health medications, including the abortion-inducing pill Mifepristone. It comes after some pharmacy chains hinted they may not carry the drug due to anti-abortion laws in other states. Speaking on WBUR's Radio Boston, Governor Mara Healy praised the new guidance. Unfortunately, we've seen states around the country rushing to ban safe and effective medication abortion. And we just wanted to remind our pharmacies here that we won't tolerate those who are restricting anyone who restricts access to it. A federal judge in Texas is considering a case that could force the FDA to take Mifepristone off the market. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Near collisions at airports, including Logan, have prompted federal air travel regulators to issue safety alerts today. It urges pilots to limit crew members' activities during takeoff and landing so they're focused on safety. It also urges them to be aware of other aircraft on nearby taxiways and runways. Last month at Logan, a JetBlue plane had to abort a landing to avoid a crash with a private jet. Nationwide, there have been six near collisions involving commercial aircraft since December. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Ed Mar- Markey was among those on Capitol Hill questioning the CEO of Cambridge-based Moderna today. Stefan Bensell testified about the company's plan to quadruple the price of its COVID-19 vaccine. It plans to increase the price to $130 per dose once the federal pandemic emergency expires. That's in May. Senator Markey said that price is beyond the budget of most Americans. Biopharmaceutical innovation can cure disease, extend lives, and end epidemics. And they should be praised for that. But the real power of that innovation comes from guaranteeing that every community, no matter of their income or zip code, has access. Bensell says it's raising the price because it costs more to make and distribute the vaccine when most purchases are handled by insurance companies rather than by the federal government, as they have been. And the forecast clouds are on the way in for the overnight hours, down to about 44 tonight. Could have spring showers tomorrow, mostly in the afternoon. Lots of clouds through the day, warming to about 60 degrees. 50 degrees still now in the Boston area at 506. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia. For 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The Federal Reserve raised interest rates again today, continuing its campaign against high inflation. 
The move comes despite concern that raising rates could put more stress on the banking system, a system already battered by the collapse of two big regional banks this month. Higher rates make it more expensive to get a car loan, borrow money for a business, or carry a balance on your credit card. NPR Scott Horsley is here to explain the Fed's actions. Hi, Scott. Hi. All right, so we were hearing all these calls for the Fed to pause these rate hikes, at least for a bit, in the wake of these two bank failures. Uh, in the end, they went a different direction. Why? Yeah, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell says he and his colleagues did consider leaving rates alone at this week's meeting, but ultimately they voted unanimously to raise borrowing costs by a quarter percentage point. You could read that as a sign of confidence that the banking system can handle these higher rates. Uh, the Fed said in its statement today the system is sound and resilient. But it's also a sign that inflation's just still too high. Uh, consumer prices in February were up 6% from a year ago. That's about three times the central bank's target. And Powell says he and his colleagues are determined to get prices under control, even if that means there's some pain along the way. We have to bring inflation down to 2%. There are real costs to bring it down to 2%, but the costs of failing are much higher. This was the ninth rate hike in a row from the, the Fed. Ninth. Wow. Okay. And it may be one of the last in this cycle. On average, uh, members of the Fed's rate-setting committee anticipate just one more quarter-point increase beyond this, and that's it. A few weeks ago, before the bank crunch, a lot of Fed officials thought they'd have to push rates higher than that. But after the collapse of Silicon Valley and Signature Banks, other banks are expected to get stingier about making loans, and that works kind of like an additional rate hike, which is both good and bad. It means slower economic growth, but also, hopefully, lower inflation. What about the Fed's own role in these bank failures? Because the Fed's also been under scrutiny here. Did Powell have anything to say on that? He, he did. He said everyone's first thought when Silicon Valley Bank collapsed 12 days ago was, how did this happen? Uh, we now know that Fed supervisors had been sounding the alarm about the bank's risk management. They'd sent repeated warnings, al although they did stop short of a formal order. And the problems of the bank were not obviously corrected in time to prevent a collapse. Powell says regulators probably do need to make some changes to keep pace with the kind of high-speed panic that ensued when news of the bank's trouble started to spread on social media, and Silicon Valley Bank's very wired customers were able to pull tens of billions of dollars out with just a few taps on their smartphones. We know that SVB experienced an unprecedentedly rapid and massive bank run. So this is a, this is a very large group of connected depositors, concentrated group of connected depositors, in a very, very fast run, faster than the historical record would suggest. Uh, the Fed is conducting an internal probe to figure out what happened and how to prevent it from happening again, and we expect results of that uh, by the 1st of May. 1st of May. Okay, so that's the Fed's internal probe. Are other people looking into this? Definitely. Two congressional committees plan to hold hearings on the bank failures. Uh, there have also been calls for an outside audit, and Powell says all that is fine by him. It's 100% certainty that there will be independent investigations and outside investigations and all that. So I, I, we welcome, when, when a bank fails, there are investigations, and of course, we welcome that. Two senators, Democrat Elizabeth Warren and Republican Rick Scott, uh, have also suggested replacing the Fed's internal inspector general with an outside inspector, someone who'd be appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. You know, ordinarily, the Fed operates with a lot of independence, which is important to shield its interest rate decisions from political interference, but it's certainly getting some political scrutiny as a result of all this. Okay, so higher interest rates and stingier banks, is this setting us up for a recession? 
It's certainly possible, although the Fed's not projecting that. Fed policymakers do expect slow growth this year and slightly higher unemployment, but they don't anticipate a recession. Uh, The stock market might be feeling somewhat differently. The Dow Jones Industrial Average tumbled 530 points today, and all the major stock indexes were down about 1.6%. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. Scott Horsley. Well, the House is back in session after a GOP retreat that reinvigorated the Republican majority's political agenda. That agenda includes potential bills on everything from education to the budget to immigration. Here is the third ranking House Republican, Elise Stefanik, touting their accomplishments so far. We are driving this policy agenda more than the Senate. And, you know, we are playing our role as the last backstop for the American people from single party Democrat rule. But House Republicans also argue that there is still plenty of room for bipartisan work with Democrats, too. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales attended the Orlando, Florida retreat and joins us now. Hey, Claudia. Hey, Elsa. So these retreats, I mean, they're often considered an opportunity for the party to solidify their upcoming legislative priorities. And based on that, tell us what do you think is next for the House now? Well, they're focusing on bills on education, border security, and perhaps looking at efforts they could look at banking related to these bank failures, not to mention continued focus on investigations into the Biden administration and the president's family. And with a very tight majority in the House, Republicans know they have their work cut out for them. So during the retreat, for example, they heard from former New Orleans Saints quarterback Drew Brees to try to inspire them to get on the same page. And so, yeah, so a a little bit of a technique there, hoping they can build some teamwork from that. But at the same time, (laughs) I talked to one Republican who described the party in two groups. There's pragmatists and purists, and they're essentially at phase one of working together. They've seen a lot of unity, even after the drama of trying to elect their speaker, Speaker McCarthy. That said, they're going to face some real challenges when they get to attempts on agreeing on complex issues such as the debt ceiling. Yeah, the debt ceiling. I mean, if the debt ceiling is not addressed, the country could be looking at a financial default. Where do Republicans stand on that right now? Right. That's what we're still waiting to learn more about. McCarthy is pushing for yet another meeting with President Biden instead of actually presenting specifics for a proposal from Republicans. They're also weighing proposals they could offer up, such as policy goals related to border security. But this is clearly going to be a difficult process for the party to reach a deal to avoid this financial default. That all said, they do see opportunities for bipartisan work, perhaps on addressing issues related to China. But it remains to be seen if they can reach that same kind of bipartisan agreement when it comes to the debt ceiling. Right. Well, we mentioned that Republicans are looking to put bills forward on a whole range of issues. Can you just give us a sense of what could be coming to the floor soon? Right. So there's several bills that they are taking to the floor that will not leave Congress, but they're key to Republicans and demands they're hearing from their constituents. Like, for example, Republicans will put a, quote, parents bill of rights uh, bill on the floor this week. This is related to education and concerns there. And when it comes to immigration, Republicans admit their splits, even among their own party, on how to address that. So they concede they're just going to focus on a bill that they want to bring to the floor imminently that just focuses on border security. Republicans also said they expect to put out a budget proposal sometime in the coming weeks or months, but some privately admit it will be hard with a five-seat majority. Indeed. Well, Republicans at this retreat wanted to find solutions for many of the challenges that they face, but I'm wondering, Claudia, how much did former President Trump's ongoing legal troubles cast a shadow on any of that? 
very large. We saw Tuesday come and go without any indictments against the former president, but yet it took up a lot of oxygen at the retreat. And while Republicans said they did not want to spend so much time focusing on this um, and wanted to focus instead on the issues that, for example, the bills they want to bring to the floor, it still was a clear reminder that the topic of President Trump will continue to dominate, dominate the subject for House Republicans for a long time to come. That is NPR's Claudia Grisales. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you much. Astronomers are still puzzling over our solar system's first known visitor from another star. This interstellar object apparently had traveled the Milky Way galaxy for hundreds of millions of years before swinging by our sun. And it was moving in an odd way. NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce reports that researchers now think they know why. It was a big deal when a telescope in Hawaii spotted this object in 2017. Scientists there named it Oumuamua, which means messenger from afar. The reddish object was thought to be an asteroid or a comet, weirdly shaped like a pancake, over 300 feet long. It whipped around the sun at a blistering 196,000 miles per hour. Jenny Bergner is an astrochemist with the University of California, Berkeley. She says most of its trajectory was due to gravitational interactions, but there was this little extra acceleration. And so this is actually something that's often seen in solar system comets because you have the surface of the comet that's facing the sun is being warmed. You have outgassing of ice. That outgassing gives the comet a little push forward. The trouble is, when scientists looked to see any gas or dust around Oumuamua, they didn't see any. There was no comet-like tail. So what was going on? Some scientists suggested it was an alien spaceship, but Bergner wasn't one of them. We never want to jump to aliens as the explanation for weird behaviors. She suspected it was something far more prosaic just water ice that had been hit by lots of cosmic radiation. That could release hydrogen that would stay trapped inside the structure of the ice. Then when the sun warmed up the ice, little cracks would form. And then through these channels, the the gas that was trapped can escape to the surface. Producing that mysterious acceleration. In the journal Nature, she and Daryl Seligman of Cornell University say that outgassing of hydrogen wouldn't have been detected before. Astronomer Karen Meech is with the Institute for Astronomy at the University of Hawaii. She says this seems plausible. It's an interesting, creative idea. And the thing that's really impressed me about the whole business of Oumuamua is all the creative ideas that are coming out. The problem is telescopes can't observe Oumuamua anymore, but there could be other opportunities. Next year, a new observatory should come online. It should be able to spot a lot more interstellar objects, giving scientists clues about the nature of the distant solar systems they came from. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR's All Things Considered, the state of the world's water supply. And just after that, the U.S. Supreme Court spends more than an hour and a half today debating a case that pits the iconic Jack Daniels trademark against a chewy dog toy company. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at MOS.org. 
The Federal Reserve hiked interest rates a quarter of a point, and Wall Street slipped in response. The Dow and S&P and Nasdaq all lost just about the same amount, one and six-tenths percent today. The Fed's move and the market slip coming up on Marketplace tonight, starting at 6.30. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, now you can do the same thing with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with a new WBUR app downloaded at the App Store today. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. It is 50 degrees now in the Boston area, a lot milder away from the coast to the low 60s out towards Shrewsbury and Worcester. Clouds should overtake the region tonight. Temperatures fall to about the mid-40s. Gray skies should stick around for the day tomorrow, letting loose with some spring showers. Should be windy and warmer than today has been, around 60 tomorrow. Then on Friday, back to about 53 degrees with sunshine and clouds both. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates to fill job openings, all from their employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. She's jet-lagged and on just four hours sleep. But today, as I meet again with Svetlana Tionovskaya, the exiled leader of the pro-democracy movement in Belarus. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. She holds a weary yet steely expression on her face. In front of her sits a binder with a massive photo of another face on the front, that of her husband, Sergei, who's been imprisoned in Belarus since 2020. Time to time you feel exhausted, you feel overstressed, you, sometimes you think you don't have a no more strength, you know, to continue. But I look into his eyes. I remember that he doesn't have opportunity, you know, to to do anything at all. And just it's like this pain transforms uh, into energy. And you wake up and go and fight. Her fight to end political persecution in her home country is what brings her again to Washington nearly three years after she challenged authoritarian leader Alexander Lukashenko in the Belarusian presidential election and accused him of rigging the vote. Since then, Lukashenko has waged a brutal crackdown on opposition figures. Some 1,400 are in prison. Others, like Tihanovskaya, are in exile. She would face at least 15 years in prison herself were she to return home. This month, a court in Belarus tried her in absentia. She was convicted of treason and other crimes. I have to say that uh, this sentence doesn't mean anything to me because it doesn't have anything to do with uh, justice. Belarus, a former Soviet republic, has long been strategically aligned with Russia. So now, as Tianovskaya explained to me today, the stakes for opposing Lukashenko are even higher. Now people are getting awful sentences, 5, 10, 15, even 20 years in jail just for opposing the regime. And uh, those people who are supporting Ukrainians, for example, are also considered to be enemies of this regime, like a young guy who donated 20 euros 
for Ukrainian army was sentenced to five years. Uh, I'm sure that all our political prisoners will be released one day, but now we have to accumulate our strength, accumulate international assistance, you know, to not just to fight, but to win this fight. Um, your country, Belarus and Ukraine, are neighbors. Your country is just to the north of Ukraine. And Belarus has not sent troops to Ukraine, but has supported Russia in other ways, including allowing Russian troops to be based in Belarus. How closely tied are the futures of your country and Ukraine? Like, How much will how this war eventually ends in Ukraine determine the future of your country? So, first of all, I ask the uh, democratic world to distinguish between Belarusian regime and Belarusian people. This is Belarusian regime who provided our territory for Russian troops to attack Ukraine. It's uh, Lukashenko and his thugs who are providing facilities and infrastructure and uh, giving uh, territory for Russian military drills. And he uh, became full accomplice to uh, Putin in this war, and he has to be at the full responsibility for this. But, of course, uh, the outcome of the war in Ukraine uh, uh, might influence the situation in Belarus. Because now uh, Lukashenko fully relies on uh, Putin's political and uh, economical support. And uh, when Ukraine wins, Putin will be weakened. And hence, Lukashenko will be weakened. But also, I think that uh, changes in Belarus might come even earlier than the war in Ukraine uh, is over. But we need more attention. We need more assistance. We, we need more bravery from our international partners, you know, to, to speak out on our independence and to bring Lukashenko to accountability. And that's, I'm speaking to you here in Washington today. What are, who are you here to meet? What are you here to ask for specifically? So uh, I came here on invitation of uh, the Congress. Uh, also, I uh, I will... Who, who invited you? Uh, I will meet with the Speaker of the House, also representatives and senators who are members of the Belarusian caucus here. Uh, also, I will uh, meet officials from uh, the State Department to discuss their strategy for Belarus. Because now we see that Belarus is uh, overlooked uh, and, uh, you know, it seems that uh, it left for one day later. You know, let's deal with Ukraine first and then we'll return to Belarus. But the fate of Ukraine and fate of Belarus are interconnected and there will be no peace and security in the region until Belarus is free. So now we are um, asking our partners to demand withdrawal of Russian troops not only from Ukraine but also from Belarus. On that point, how would that work? What would that look like? I mean, the U.S. is not in Belarus to be able to kick Russian troops out. So what, what exactly are you asking for? Yes, but the U.S. is not in Ukraine as well. But they are uh, huge supporters uh, of Ukrainians in this war. Uh, so we are asking to create multiple points of the pressure on the regime through sanctions, uh, through political isolation, uh, and to uh, increase assistance to those and people who are fighting uh, to this regime. Because uh, dictators percept this silence as, as impunity. You know, they feel free to act as they want. And only when they see that uh, democratic countries are uh, united, in their demands, in their decisions, so it uh, threatens dictators. Um, a personal question, if I may. The last time I interviewed you was 2021, and you told me you were struggling to explain to your older child, your son, where his father was, his father being your husband, Sergei, who, um, who was the first member of the family to run for president of Belarus and was imprisoned and remains in prison. 
What is the conversation with your son like now? Uh, of course, now uh, my older son and younger daughter, uh, who is seven, now know the truth, of course, because uh, I had to explain, because they uh, are writing letters to uh, their daddy. And uh, it's very important for me that, you know, my husband feels the presence of uh, uh, the children in his life at the moment. From their letters, he knows that uh, his younger daughter is starting to write, you know. I ask her to uh, draw pictures with the bright colors because I explained that everything is dull around him, gray walls, he doesn't see blue sky, you know, just remind him that what colors exist. What does your daughter draw for him? Uh, usually she draws uh, pictures where all the members of our family are present, you know, even if we uh, are on, uh, on vacation, for example, you know, he's not with us, but she's drawing that he's swimming with us, that he's uh, like on the plane with us, uh, because I'm sure that she pretends that he's nearby. And what about you? Can you speak to him by phone? When was the last time you heard your husband's voice? It was autumn 2020. Since then, I didn't have opportunity to communicate. Uh, the only chance to send my uh, love to him is uh, through a lawyer who visits him uh, once a week. Just uh, as we call, the lawyers now are a very expensive postman because they, you know, <laughs> deliver. Yeah, this is our reality. And, uh, you know, just it's our everyday life. And uh, I really want, don't want the world to forget about what's going on in Belarus. You know, this fight for freedom is not the local one. It's uh, the like, moral obligation of all the countries who are especially powerful countries, you know, to, be, to protect those who are on the difficult path for, for changes. Svetlana Tionovskaya, thank you. Thank you. Exiled opposition leader Svetlana Tionovskaya of Belarus. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about 20 minutes, rewiring the brain. In sports, Red Sox take on the Minnesota Twins in spring training tonight. Tanner Houck gets the start for Boston. New England Patriots have re-signed defensive back Jalen Mills five days after the team released him. Multiple media reports say the deal is for one year and up to $6.1 million. Looking to get out and see some fancy footwork? Check out WBUR's Spring Dance Guide. You'll find 10 dance company events to consider. It's all at WBUR.org. In the forecast right now, it is 51 degrees in the Boston area. Cloudy skies overnight tonight, breezy in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, lots of clouds, chance of rain in the afternoon, breezy and mild, right about 60 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bernadine Sun Megason and Tim O'Sullivan with Compass New England, helping clients navigate the evolving Massachusetts real estate market. More at homesbybernadine.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, from Nubian Square to the South End, Malcolm X spent years in Boston learning, listening to jazz, and honing his message. We uncover how neighborhoods here influenced the revolutionary and explore the ways the city has and has not embraced him. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the chamber is moving closer to a vote on a bill that would officially repeal the legislation that authorized the war in Iraq. At this point, repealing the Iraq AUMFs in the Senate is not a matter of if, but rather of when. I hope, given such strong bipartisan vote yesterday, we can move quickly. There should be no needless delay or dilatory tactics on something the majority of senators support. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee last week approved a bill to repeal the 1991 and 2002 authorizations for the use of military force. The vote is seen as largely symbolic, given combat operations ended in Iraq more than a decade ago. The government is planning to overhaul the organ donation system. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports the program has been run by one organization for decades and has been plagued by problems. Long wait times, wasted organs, problems with transparency, those were some of the complaints about a nonprofit called the United Network for Organ Sharing, which has had a monopoly over the country's organ donation system for decades. Now, the federal health agency that oversees organ donation will ask for bids from different companies for different parts of the operation. It also launched an online dashboard that shows things like waitlist outcomes and data on different hospital transplant centers. The agency also asked Congress to make changes to the law to allow for further reforms, including an increase in funding. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. Stocks closed lower across the board on Wall Street today. The Dow Jones was down 530 points. The Nasdaq Composite fell 190. The S&P was down 65 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey says she's focused on building a better tea. On WBUR's Radio Boston today, she said she soon plans to name a new MBTA general manager and transportation chief. And she said she wants to fill hundreds of positions for drivers, mechanics, and other MBTA workers. It's also about really going into communities and going um, to find people who might not have thought about this as a career. And to bring them in and to say, like, look, this can be a great career. Um, It is the case, and it still is the case, that you can start in one position and work your way up. Last week, Healy unveiled her supplemental budget. It included $20 million to help the team recruit and retain workers. Some of that would be used to boost entry-level pay. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell is backing a legal case filed by the Mexican government. It challenges a U.S. law that shields gunmakers from some legal liability. Mexico filed suit against seven U.S. gun manufacturers and a distributor. The suit claims the companies design, market, and sell guns, knowing they appeal to drug cartels and violent gangs. Campbell and 16 other attorneys general have filed a brief in the case. They argue federal law does not exempt gun manufacturers and dealers from liability when they violate laws related to sales and marketing practices. The chair of the Metropolitan Council for Educational Opportunity, or the MECO program, wants $2.8 million more from the state in the next fiscal year. MECO sends more than 3,000 students from Boston to surrounding suburban school districts. Governor Maura Healey's proposed budget keeps funding for the program flat, uh, same level as this year. MECO Chair Patrick Kimball says more money is needed to deal with inflation and deepen equity work. MECO is a program that really shines light on what opportunity provides the students when given a chance, right, and what those outcomes look like. 
Kimball says MECO students graduate at a 95 percent rate. That's higher than the graduation rate statewide or for Boston public schools. Some Boston city councilors want to publish an annual list of bad landlords in the city. The list will be made up of property owners who repeatedly violate state and local housing regulations. Those landlords will be dubbed scoff laws and would be barred from doing business in the city. Proponents filed a proposal this week. It will be reviewed by the city council's Committee on Government Operations. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Into the Woods, coming to Boston direct from Broadway and with its Broadway stars to boot. Two weeks only, now through April 2nd. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. Pretty nice throughout the day today, but clouds are on the way in. Should be down around 44 overnight tonight. Could have cloudy skies again tomorrow. Spring showers, temperatures about 60 degrees. 51 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere. Designed to assist those working from home. More at remotepc.com. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com bankingforbusiness. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Denver police have now identified a student accused of shooting two staff members at the city's East High School this morning. Police say that the student fled the building and is still at large. Colorado Public Radio's Ben Marcus is following the story and joins us now with the latest. Hi, Ben. How are you doing? I'm okay, but can you just tell us more about what police say happened today? It started when a male East High student, who police say is Austin Lyle, 17 years old, he was a known risk. And so he was being searched by administrators a little before 10 o'clock this morning. He was on what they call a safety plan, meaning he was searched on a regular basis based on his past behavior. A handgun was found during the search, and the shooting occurred at that point. Paramedics happened to be near the school, and they responded immediately and probably saved the victims' lives. One faculty member is in critical condition and underwent surgery today. Another is in serious but stable condition. No students were shot or injured, and the school was evacuated fairly soon after the shooting. God. Okay, so how is the search for this student going right now? Well, after initially not identifying the suspect, police this afternoon put out an alert with Lyle's photo and the make of his red SUV that he's driving. They're encouraging anyone with tips as to his location. Uh, Denver Mayor Michael Hancock was at the school this morning, visibly shaken. His son and daughter both graduated recently from East High School. Nothing trumps the safety of our young people in this building and the faculty and staff. And we feel for them right now. Uh, This should never, as a parent, I can tell you, never be a concern of a parent, uh, whether or not their kids are safe in their building. And, Ben, I understand that gun violence, unfortunately, is something that East High School is familiar with. Like just last month, a student there was shot and killed, right? Yeah, last month, an East student was shot in a park near the school. He later died. That case is still under investigation. But not long after that, hundreds of East High students wearing their 
bright red shirts marched on the school uh, from the school to the Colorado Capitol in support of gun control, including age limits on gun purchases. East High School is a notable school. It was the first high school in Denver. It opened in the late 1800s. It's considered one of the top schools in the city, centrally located, not far from the state capitol. And they recently won the state boys basketball championship. Mm. Well, can you tell us more about how students and parents are reacting to today's shooting? The parents I spoke with are angry, um, particularly because Denver police used to post officers inside of schools, but Denver school board removed them after the George Floyd social justice protests in 2020. There was a belief then that the officers were unfairly targeting black and Latino students, criminalizing and traumatizing them. Mm -hmm. But calls have been growing in recent months following other shootings to bring the officers back. And that's likely to only intensify after this shooting. So this student who was ID'd as at risk was being searched by educators, and we don't know what kind of training they had to conduct these searches. That is Colorado Public Radio's Ben Marcus. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Water, water everywhere. But more than one in four people worldwide do not have access to safe drinking water. Nearly half the world, 46 percent, lacks safely managed sanitation. And water shortages are projected to get worse. Well, these are among the headlines from a new United Nations report on water. We're going to talk them through with Richard Connor, who's editor-in-chief of the report, and also hopefully get to some bright spots and success stories. Richard Connor, welcome. Thanks for your time. Well, thanks for having me. All right, let me kick us off with one more number. Your report finds two to three billion people have water shortages for at least a month every year. And the report also expects that to increase. Why? What's driving this? Essentially, it's uh, two things, climate change and population growth. Mm -hmm. More intense storms, more intense droughts, and... uh, much less stability. So there is water, it's just not where human population needs it? Is that is that what's going on here? Yeah, well, it's not necessarily falling where it should, but mm-hmm. the question is not just where, it's when. And so recurring droughts, if you have enough water storage, you can easily go through a few months. If the, the drought occurs during the growing season... That creates serious, serious problems for food security and also the livelihoods of uh, the farmers that are growing the food. So what's left to do about it? It's uh, it's to learn how to use, manage the water that we have when we have it. Population growth is not really happening that much in the developed world. It's all in developing and emerging economies. And that population growth itself is all pretty much all happening in cities. That means that where the problems are concentrated and that opens uh, possibilities to solutions. If it was wide ranging and all over the place, it would be a lot more difficult to tackle. Your report does highlight some examples of partnerships or cooperation that that work. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so you've got you've got these rapidly increasing cities. Right now, one-third of the world's cities that rely on surface water are in competition with the agricultural areas surrounding. We call them peri-urban areas. And it turns out that that's where the food to feed the cities grow. So obviously, it's in everybody's best interest to find ways to negotiate or to balance the needs of both the rural and the urban communities. One way 
in the most important way is to increase the efficiency of water use in the in in the agriculture now if the municipality pays farmers to allow them to afford to increase their efficiency the municipalities win in two ways one it allows them to have more water available and second that the water that they do have available is cleaner because agricultural runoff is usually has pesticides herbicides sure. you know uh, and so yeah, yeah. exactly a fertilizer so that if you don't have that in the runoff as it comes to the cities the cities save can save significant amounts in uh, in water treatment costs so they're not the cities aren't paying any more it's just that they're paying for upstream uh, land management agriculture and also uh, protecting natural habitat natural um, ecosystems that so is that a big part of the message water. you're trying to get across here that that solutions can be a win-win if we just reframe our thinking about things a little bit absolutely it's not one versus the other it's pretty much everyone together and I hate to sound like some kumbaya, it's like we're all together in this, but the fact is we are. And then you add the nature preservation in the mix. If you protect your wetlands, they also clean water, they remove pollutants. So at the end, again, if you've protected your upstreams properly, you have more and cleaner water coming into the cities. So yeah, everybody wins. Richard Connor is lead author of the new UN Water Report, speaking to us from UN headquarters in New York. Mr. Connor, thanks. Well, thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The U.S. Supreme Court spent more than an hour and a half today chewing on a trademark question. It pits the iconic Jack Daniel trademark against a chewy dog toy company that is making money by lampooning the whiskey. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. Ultimately, this case centers on, well, dog poop. Jack Daniels' lawyer, Lisa Blatt, got right to the point with her opening sentence. This case involves a dog toy that copies Jack Daniels' trademark and trade dress and associates its whiskey with dog poop. Indeed, Jack Daniels is trying to stop the sale of that dog toy, contending that it infringes on its trademark, confuses consumers, and tarnishes its reputation. VIP, the company that manufactures and markets the dog toy, says it is not infringing on the trademark. It's spoofing it. The toy looks like a vinyl version of a Jack Daniels whiskey bottle, but the label is called Bad Spaniels, features a drawing of a spaniel on the chewy bottle, and instead of promising 40% alcohol by volume, it promises, quote, 43% poo. VIP says no reasonable person would confuse the toy with Jack Daniels. Rather, it says the product is a humorous and expressive work and thus immune from the whiskey company's charge of patent infringement. The justices struggled to reconcile their own previous decisions enforcing the nation's trademark laws and what some of them saw as a potential threat to free speech. Jack Daniels argued that a trademark is a property right that by its very nature limits some speech. 
On the other side was VIP's lawyer, Bennett Cooper. In our popular culture, iconic brands are another kind of celebrity. People are constitutionally entitled to talk about celebrities and, yes, even make fun of them. As for the justices, they were all over the place, with conservative Justice Alito and liberal Justice Sotomayor both asking questions about how the First Amendment right of free speech intersects with trademark laws that are meant to protect brands and other intellectual property. Suppose, asked Sotomayor, that someone used a political party logo and created a T-shirt with a picture of an obviously drunk elephant, for example, and a message that says, time to sober up, America, and then sells that T-shirt on Amazon. Isn't that a message protected by the First Amendment? Justice Alito observed that if there's a conflict between trademark protection and the First Amendment, free speech wins. Beyond that, he said, no CEO would be stupid enough to authorize a dog toy like this one. Could any reasonable person think that Jack Daniels had approved this use of the mark? Um, absolutely. It's, it's, that's why we won below. I don't know. I had a dog. I know something about dogs. The, okay. the question is not what the average person would think. It's whether there should be, this should be a reasonable person standard. But liberal Justices Kagan and conservative Justice Gorsuch repeatedly looked for an off-ramp, a way for this case to be sent back to the lower court with instructions to either screen out or screen in some products when considering trademark infringement. Kagan, in particular, did not find the dog toy remotely funny. This is a standard commercial product. This is not um, a political T-shirt. It's not a film. It's not an artistic photograph. It's nothing of those things. It's a standard commercial product. I don't see the parody, but, you know, whatever. At the end of the day, just whatever the court is going to do with this case remained supremely unclear. Indeed, three of the justices were remarkably silent, giving no hints of their thinking whatsoever. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us this evening. Coming up, the Federal Reserve hikes interest rates again. That's ahead in 10 minutes. And coming up next, a testament to the healing power of the human brain. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. After a bright day, we should have clouds move in this evening and stick around tonight and tomorrow as well. Overnight lows should be in the mid-40s, so not too chilly tonight. Tomorrow, wind should pick up. Temperatures should rise to about 60, clouds lasting the day tomorrow. And then for Friday, a little bit cooler in the mid-50s with a blend of sunshine and clouds. Red Sox will top Tanner Houck tonight in their spring training matchup with the Minnesota Twins. The Sox are tied with the Atlanta Braves for the second-best record in the Grapefruit League. St. Louis is number one as of now. WBUR supporters include Lesley University. Inspire future generations with an education degree from Lesley University. Learn more at lesley.edu. Artificial intelligence can create original material in a matter of seconds, which is just what makes some people worry. A bad actor can take one of these tools and use this to make unimaginable amounts of really plausible almost terrifying misinformation that the average person is not going to recognize as misinformation. The Dark Side of AI, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. When a brain is injured, it recovers by rewiring. The process is known as brain plasticity. As part of an occasional series on brain plasticity, NPR's John Hamilton reports on an extreme example, children who lose an entire side of their brain. In most people, speech and language live in the brain's left hemisphere. Maura Lieb is not most people. Hi, Maura. How you doing? Good. How are you, John? Maura, who is 15, has grown up without the left side of her brain. She likes tennis and soccer, getting her nails done, and jokes. How do you make a hot dog stand? I don't know. How do you? Take away its chair. Somehow, Maura's right hemisphere has taken on jobs usually done on the left side, functions like speaking and reading. Maura describes her right-brained life this way. Personally, I am can be described as a glass-half-full girl. A glass-half-full girl who shows just how plastic the brain can be. Scientists hope that by studying people like Maura, they can help others recover from less severe brain injuries. About two months before Maura was born, she had a massive stroke, though no one knew it at the time. Her mom, Ann Lieb, says her daughter seemed like a typical baby at first. She smiled. She rolled over. And then in the holiday season of 2007, all of these milestones sort of stopped. Lieb says Mara was just three months old when she began having epileptic seizures. These seizures started to cluster, and there were 20 of them in a minute, and then there were hundreds of them a day. Doctors ordered an MRI of Mara's brain. They showed the image to Anne and her husband, Seth. Seth and I have no background in medicine, but you just didn't need it to read that MRI. Half of her brain was lit up, and the other half of her brain was basically gray. Most of the cells were damaged or dead, and the ones left were causing seizures. So surgeons removed most of the left side of Maura's brain, including areas that were still controlling movement on one side. Basically, the surgery created a newborn. She could no longer roll over. She could no longer smile. It was almost like a restart. Anne and Seth Lieb focused on getting their daughter the best physical and cognitive therapies available. And gradually, Maura began to improve. At 18 months, she finally sat up. And at 23 months, she finally walked. When Maura was six and a half, she began using sentences. At her bat mitzvah, she gave a short speech. Researchers say one key to Maura's recovery is that her brain injury occurred very early in life, a period when the wiring is still a work in progress. For example, in adults, words are generally processed in the left brain, while faces are processed in the right. But Dr. Michael Granovetter of the University of Pittsburgh says that's not true in infants. Your brain doesn't start out having word recognition completely on the left and face recognition completely on the right. Early on, Granovetter says, these two functions are competing for space. So the brain pushes them to opposite sides. But what happens in people like Mara? If this competition between word recognition and face recognition in the brain plays out over development, what if only one hemisphere was available? What might we see? Can one hemisphere actually take on the burden of two? To find out, Granovetter and a team of researchers studied face and word recognition in 40 people, including Mora. They'd all lost either the right or left hemisphere as children. Marlene Berman of the University of Pittsburgh says in grown-up brains, a stroke on the left side can permanently affect skills like reading. Even if it is really a focal and circumscribed injury, 
they will be profoundly impaired at word recognition. A right brain stroke can permanently impair the ability to recognize faces. So Berman says the team expected to see big deficits in people who'd lost an entire hemisphere. Much to our surprise, we found that that's absolutely not true. Irrespective of whether the left or the right hemisphere is preserved, these kids can recognize both faces and words. With about 80% accuracy, compared with greater than 90% in typical people. That difference is significant, but far less than people who experience brain injuries later in life, when the brain's wiring is less malleable. Dr. Lisa Shulman is a neurodevelopmental pediatrician at Montefiore in New York. She says Maura's brain does have limitations. She speaks and processes very slowly, despite normal hearing. She has almost a, a telegraphic quality to her speech, one word at a time. Shulman says that's common among people with damage to the left brain. When you lose that left side, which is controlling a lot of motor functioning, it can impact the mouth, the tongue, the palate, how all those things come into play. Even so, Shulman says Morris progress has been remarkable. Every time I see her, she's done something I could not have imagined when I first met her. Anne Lieb says her daughter, who didn't use sentences until she was six and a half, now loves to watch game shows involving words and phrases. Do not call our house between seven and eight in the evening because we are devoted Jeopardy and We All Fortune fans. Maura also understands language concepts like... Idioms. Idioms. Do you have a favorite idiom? Grasshopper and rose-colored glasses. But other cognitive tasks can be a challenge. For example, sometimes Maura has trouble understanding what she's reading. And she can be thrown by an unfamiliar concept or a sneaky punchline. So can you tell me a joke? Okay, I'll tell you a joke. So a termite walks into a bar and says, where is the bartender? Bad joke. And you've got to know that termites like to munch on softer wood. Okay, that didn't go over so well, John. <laughs> I know, I know, but I'm not the one who's good at telling jokes here. Even so, Anne Lieb says a termite in a bar is exactly the kind of idea that's still hard for her daughter to process on the fly. And Maura has other challenges. The right side of her body will never be as strong as the left. She'll never see things in the visual field to the right of her nose. Yet Anne says when it comes to cognitive functions, her daughter's brain is still rewiring and adapting. She's met... So many expectations and gone beyond. Check in with us, John, in five years, and we'll be telling you more. In the meantime, Maura's 15-year-old brain has clearly reached another developmental milestone. I have challenges of being the mother of a teenager. So, you know, in the morning, she doesn't want to get out of bed. In the evening, she doesn't want to go to bed. And when she's awake, Maura likes to chat. A lot. Goodbye. It is great to talk to you, Maura. Bye-bye. Great to talking to you. John Hamilton, NPR News. Yeah.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from Progressive, Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR, 50 degrees now in Boston, milder away from the coast. Clouds should overtake the region tonight as temperatures fall to the mid-40s. Gray skies sticking around for the day tomorrow, letting loose with some spring showers. Should be windy and warmer than today, about 60 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhill Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville. Celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses, stanhopeframers.com. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The head of Norfolk Southern Railway was in the hot seat again before U.S. Senators today. He answered questions about the toxic derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, and was pressed to move beyond the railroad's apologies for the catastrophe. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, March 22nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, to address chronic teacher shortages, school districts across the U.S. are creating residency programs to better recruit and train new teachers. Well, we may learn Wednesday, we can come to the school and apply Thursday. We'll hear how one program's already paying off. In Iraq 20 years ago, parts of Fallujah were leveled in two huge battles when the U.S. invaded Iraq. ISIS took it over, was driven out in 2016. Today it is a very different city, but the memories remain. It's 6.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Stocks sank at the end of the trading day after the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by another quarter point. As NPR's David Gurr reports, Fed Chair Jerome Powell acknowledged there's a lot of uncertainty after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. The Federal Reserve decided not to pause, although Fed Chair Jerome Powell acknowledged it was something he and his colleagues discussed before this week's meeting got underway. Instead, the Fed reaffirmed its commitment to getting high inflation under control by staying the course. But Powell acknowledged the fallout from the failure of Silicon Valley Bank may lead other banks to pull back on lending. And he addressed a disconnect between what the Fed says it'll do next and what Wall Street expects. Powell said he and his fellow policymakers do not expect to cut interest rates this year, a comment that led markets lower into the close. David Gura, 
NPR News, New York. A Manhattan grand jury investigating former President Donald Trump's role in a hush money scheme will not meet today. But NPR's Andrea Bernstein reports the inquiry is in its final stages. The grand jury, which has been meeting Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, has been canceled for today. And maybe for the week, a person familiar with the probe told NPR, no reason has been given and grand jury proceedings are secret. The DA's office isn't confirming or denying reports of the delay. But as Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg moves towards a possible indictment, the complications of bringing a former president before a New York criminal court judge have come into high relief. If Trump is indeed charged, procedure calls for him to turn himself in, get fingerprinted, walk to the courtroom, and then enter a plea of guilty or not guilty. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on Capitol Hill today and tomorrow defending the administration's budget request. He says the U.S. wants to outcompete China and counter Russia's aggression, as NPR's Michelle Kelman explains. Secretary Blinken tells senators that we're facing an inflection point in U.S. foreign policy. The post-Cold War era is over and there is an intense competition underway to shape, to determine what comes next. Blinken says there are two key challenges, the immediate threat posed by Russia's war against Ukraine and the long-term challenge of competing with China. He says the budget the Biden administration proposes is focused on that. And he says it includes support for those who helped U.S. forces in Afghanistan. He's expected to face a lot of tough questions about that. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The recent collapse of a couple of regional banks appears to have shaken consumer confidence to some degree. Agree. That's according to a new Associated Press Nork Center for Public Affairs research poll. Finds only 10% of those surveyed say they have significant confidence in the nation's banks and financial institutions. That in part weighed on Wall Street today. The Dow fell 530 points. The Nasdaq was down 190 points. The S&P closed down 65 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. There are lead paint concerns in Chelsea. People in the city are finding paint chips that have flaked off the Tobin Bridge and landed in streets and in yards. Chelsea officials have found the debris contains a high amount of lead. WBUR's Paula Mora has the story. Lead exposure can damage the brain and nervous system. So the environmental advocacy group Greenroots is telling people not to touch the paint chips barehanded or let children have contact with them. Roseanne Bongiovanni with the group says the ground is covered with them for three blocks near the bridge. What we really want to see is that the bridge is fully deleted, that all of those paint chips are removed from our neighborhoods, that any contaminated soil is removed and remediated and replaced with clean soil. The State Department of Transportation says it will inspect the area and develop an immediate removal plan. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moura. The state of Massachusetts is reminding pharmacies that they are required by law to stock reproductive health medications and dispense them with a valid prescription. Today's directive comes as several states move to ban abortion medication. Governor Maura Healy says Massachusetts will always protect access to reproductive health care, including abortion. Some advocates for young people want Massachusetts lawmakers to fully fund a confidential texting hotline for young people in need of support. It's called Hey Sam, and it's a resource for people under 24 who are suicidal, depressed, or feeling overwhelmed. Governor Healy cut state funding for the service by 71 percent in her budget. The group Samaritans operates the hotline. Its CEO, Kathleen Markey, says the resource has been successful 100 percent of the time at lowering the risk of suicide for those who contact the service. She explains what that means. 
that they're doing something to keep themselves safe and that they are no longer at a high risk for suicide. So that's the 100% de-escalation. The governor's office says the proposed funding cut reflects one-time costs that were associated with launching the hotline last year. The first zero-emission geothermal greenhouse in Massachusetts is up and running. Today, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu paid a visit. She hailed the East Boston Project as a model for how to address global climate change locally. Here's WBUR's Barbara Moran. At today's ribbon-cutting, Mayor Wu pointed to a new U.N. report, which warns that the world's climate is near a tipping point, and the time to act urgently is now. Which means people are looking around saying, what are the ways that we can do things differently and better and faster and more with community? And they're looking right here to this geothermal greenhouse for Eastie Farms in East Boston. The greenhouse will grow food for local residents and also capture rainwater to help prevent flooding in the neighborhood. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. A cloudy night coming up tonight. Not too cold, about 45 for a low. Tomorrow should be gray and maybe damp, too. Clouds through the day, the chance of spring showers in the afternoon, warming all the way to 60 degrees at least. Friday should pull back to the mid-50s with partly sunny skies. This is 90.9 WBUR, still 50 degrees in Boston at 607. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The head of Norfolk Southern Railway was back in the hot seat today, being grilled by senators in a hearing focused on the fiery freight train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, last month. Once again, he said his company takes responsibility and will make things right. And Piers David Shaper covered that hearing. Hey there, David. Good afternoon. Hey, so let's set up what came before the testimony today from the Norfolk Southern CEO, Alan Shaw, because senators heard first from Ohio's governor, Mike DeWine, and they also heard from a resident of East Palestine. What did they say about how uh, the community is still being affected now, what, almost seven weeks after the train went off the tracks? Yeah, Mary Louise, Misty Allison is a mother of two and says when the train derailed, she could see the huge fireball from her driveway. And then when there was the controlled burn of toxic vinyl chloride a couple of days later, it was like a bomb went off. Terrifying. She says even though health officials say the air and water is safe, many there are worried about the potential health effects and the anxiety is real. My seven-year-old has asked me if he is going to die from living in his own home. What do I tell him? Allison went on to say that her community now has a scarlet letter on it. People don't want to come there. Businesses are struggling. Home values are plummeting. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine uh, echoed those concerns, and he joined the hearing remotely from the East Palestine High School Library. Mm -hmm. He said that at 8.55 on that Friday night, February 3rd, life in East Palestine stopped being normal, and many people there continue to live in fear for their safety and for their futures. Members of the committee, Norfolk Southern has an obligation to restore this community. It was their train, their tracks, their accident, they're responsible for this tragedy. All right, so that's the governor. What did the CEO, what did Alan Shaw say? Yeah, well, as he has said before, he says he's terribly sorry for this environmental disaster. He knows it's been traumatic and that his company is now setting up funds to address long-term concerns, including health care, property values, and monitoring the water 
To date, Shaw says the railway company has already paid out about $24 million in reimbursements and cleanup costs, among other things. And he says that's just the beginning. But, you know, some people in East Palestine say that it's not always clear what costs are being covered and, and what won't be. And they, they, they want more clarity. Okay, so all this testimony today was unfolding before Congress, which is considering stricter safety regulations for the freight train industry, including Mm -hmm. some measures that have been opposed by railroads in the past. Is the industry changing its tune at all on that? Well, a a little bit. Shaw says Norfolk Southern will support legislative efforts to enhance rail safety, but he spoke in general terms and he waffled a bit on specifics. For example, when he was pressed by Democratic Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts on whether he'd support legislation requiring two-person train crews at a minimum, he was actually quite evasive. Senator, we'll, we'll commit to using research and technology to ensure the railroad operates safely. Will you commit to a, a two-person crew on all trains? Senator, we're a data-driven organization, and I'm not aware of any data that links crew size with safety. However, a railroad union safety official disputes that, saying that had there been just a one-person crew on the train that derailed in East Palestine, the results could have been even more disastrous. Thank you, David. Thank you. And Pierre's David Shaper. Many schools across the country are grappling with teacher shortages. NPR's Corey Turner has been looking into some of the hardest-hit school systems and what they're doing about it. Today on Morning Edition, we heard about some extra challenges that big city districts face in attracting and keeping teachers. And now, Corey's got the story of a big idea that is helping districts all over the country grow their own teachers. All right, I think we're ready. Lots of states have these grow-your-own programs. Illinois, Texas, Tennessee. But I'm going to focus on Mississippi's and the impact it's having in the state capital, Jackson. All right, let's build some words. First grade teacher Kimberly Pate is 52 and worked for nearly two decades in Jackson schools as a classroom assistant. As a paraprofessional, of course, the pay is peanuts. So I was working literally two full-time jobs to make ends meet. With four children of her own, Pape couldn't afford to go back to college to become a fully licensed teacher. That is, until she was offered a slot in something called the Mississippi Teacher Residency. The pitch was hard to believe. She'd get a fully paid-for master's degree and a better salary. And Pape could be a student while still working full-time. If it wasn't a full salary, I don't think I would be able to do it. But it was. And she did. And soon she'll have her master's degree plus dual certification in elementary and special education, both in critically short supply here. It's like, how how could you pass that up? Like many big city districts, Jackson, Mississippi has a teacher shortage, though it's not particularly new. On average, the district loses one in five teachers every year. The pay doesn't help, with Mississippi ranking near the bottom nationally. Jackson also struggles with poverty and a years-long water crisis. This is why the Mississippi Department of Education is focusing its residency program in Jackson and other hard-to-staff districts across the state. What about this? Uh, Oh, In return for her degree, Kimberly Pate agreed to keep teaching in Jackson for at least three years. Judging by the way her first graders smile and laugh and work hard at her silly phonics games, that's a win for them too. Let's do it. 
and T. Keegan, and T. Come here, Keegan. Come to the board, Keegan. Come on, boy. Come on, Keegan. <laughs> 18 full-fledged Jackson teachers have already come out of the residency program, and about as many are on their way. Jennifer Carter got her master's in December, and already she's the educator equivalent of a Swiss Army knife. Carter is an in-demand special education teacher by day, and by night, or at least before and after school, she does another hard-to-fill job. Bus driver. There's also elementary school teacher Jonah Thomas. I'll come help you with the car. I'm not signing in. He's just 22 in a crisp black shirt, the sleeves short enough to show his brother's name, Jonathan, tattooed on his right arm. Thomas studied economics in college. When they came around, I was still looking for accounting jobs and stuff like this. So if it weren't for this program, I wouldn't even be a teacher. But he is, dapping up kids in the cafeteria as they rush to greet him. Good morning, good morning, good morning, Kylie. LJ. See, the Mississippi teacher residency isn't just about lifting up folks who are already working in schools. It's also about reaching college grads like Thomas, who'd never considered teaching. What's the word? The. Okay, what's... Districts across the U.S. know they have to expand the pool of potential teachers somehow. While Thomas is inexperienced, he knows firsthand the power of great teaching. I watched my mom teach growing up as a little boy. She treated other kids like they were her kids. I remember being jealous sometimes. <laughs> I was that type of child. Thomas says taking master's level classes while also working has been exhausting, but also kind of amazing. Everything that we learn, we can apply to our classroom. Like we have classes sometimes where we may learn Wednesday, we can come to the school and apply it Thursday. This fast-track training program is also meant to diversify the teacher force because students can benefit a lot from seeing themselves reflected in their teachers. Young black men like Jonah Thomas are rare in teaching, especially at the elementary school level. Now that he's in the classroom and nearly done with his master's, how does he feel? This program saved me. One of the ideas that is central to Grow Your Own Programs, as the name suggests, is that candidates be personally invested in the communities where they teach. Ideally, they're local, not just parachuting in from the outside. 61-year-old pastor Dwayne Williams attended Jackson Public Schools as a child. Now, he's teaching second graders. He bought an ice cream cone from the shopkeeper. Hmm, he thought. Mr. D, as he's known, sports a short, graying beard and suspenders. The kids are clearly having fun as he helps them prep for a multiple choice test. Is it B? No. A is correct. No. William says he hadn't planned on becoming a full-time teacher at his age. I just thought I was just going to substitute a couple of days a week, but I became passionate about it. William says he understands the toll that poverty can take on families that are doing everything they can to escape it. A lot of the parents are working three and four jobs, so they are not at home to raise children. So who is raising the children? Children are. In addition to teaching some 30 second graders, Williams has also started a mentoring program. If there's a problem in the classroom with one of the students, they'll send them to me. We sit, we talk. And you may not change everybody, but you can change somebody.
Jennifer Carter says one of the things she enjoys about being a special educator is supporting students who she says are acting out in class because they need help reading or understanding math, but they're too embarrassed to ask. They would rather be the problem child than the child that has a problem they, they can't work through. Carter says when she was younger, she never expected to go to college, let alone earn a master's degree. And Kimberly Pate says if it weren't for the Mississippi teacher residency, she likely wouldn't be where she is now either. Can Gwendolyn come up and help you? I think so. You think so? Awesome. In her own classroom, teaching children how to read, one little win at a time. All right, here we go. What's the first sound, Gwendolyn? Paint. Paint. Awesome! Y'all did good! So both of y'all get a treat. Pate's first graders smile on the edge of their chairs. It's hard work reading. But they know they have Ms. Pate, and she's not going anywhere. You ready? I need you to blow me away. Corey Turner, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, at the height of the pandemic, the Economic Injury Disaster Program gave loans to small businesses with two and a half years payback deferment. Justin Ho reports that now the loan recipients are having to start paying back. The story is coming up at 6.30 on Marketplace. On Wall Street, the Dow and S&P and Nasdaq all fell about one and six-tenths percent today. And a Cambridge-based biotech firm has received more than $120 million in new investments. Flare Therapeutics announced the fundraising round today. It will use the new funding to support research into treatments for cancer. The investors include Pfizer, Novartis, and Eli Lilly. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by an unlikely story bookstore and cafe in Plainville, believing that where you shop shapes where you live, with books, games, and gifts at the bookstore's Easter market through Saturday, April 8th, an unlikelystory.com. Starbucks workers in Somerville joined a nationwide strike this morning. Employees at the shop on Somerville Ave walked off the job and demonstrated for two hours. They're trying to unionize. About 100 stores across the country took part in today's strike. They want wage increases and better workplace safety. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Don Quixote. Returning for the first time in more than 10 years. On stage now through the 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Holding steady at about 50 degrees in Boston, milder away from the coast. Clouds overnight tonight as temperatures fall to the mid-40s. Gray skies for tomorrow, letting loose with some showers in the afternoon. Windy and warmer than today, about 60 degrees. This is WBUR in Boston. WBUR supporters include UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. After the U.S. invasion of Iraq, which began 20 years ago this week, one city would become known to Americans as the epicenter of the Iraqi insurgency, Fallujah. Vast areas of the city were leveled into huge battles between insurgents and U.S. troops. Years later, ISIS would take it over and be driven out in another destructive fight in 2016. Well, NPR's Ruth Sherlock visited there a few days ago and saw a very different city, though memories of the violence remain. 
It is a strange experience driving into Fallujah. All I've heard about this place is the stories of refugees, of the city destroyed. And here we are, and there's cheerful restaurants, shops, these gleaming new buildings, construction projects. We've arrived at a construction site to interview real estate magnate Sarhan al-Isawi. Welcome on Fallujah. Isawi invites us into his office and through our interpreter he lays out the scale of the project. This complex looks like a small city. It contains all services from 24 hours electricity, security, uh, schools, and nursery schools, and uh, clinics. A brightly colored print of the design of the project hangs on the wall of Asawi's office. It shows 14 apartment buildings, 11 stories each, separated by parks lined with trees. He's putting some $27 million of his own money into the project. I ask him, isn't it a risk to invest so much money in a place with such a recent history of war? I used to be a soldier, so I don't mind taking risks, he quips. But then he gets serious. Uh, we are full sure that this project will succeed. He says there's a desire among Fallujah residents for new things, for a new way of life. He says many of the apartments have been bought already, even before being finished. One reason for this, he says, is the Iraqi government is offering people cheap mortgages as an incentive. Iraq's parliament speaker, Mohammed al-Halbousi, is the former governor of Fallujah's Anbar province and also a construction mogul. Isawi says Halbousi has helped direct government funds to redevelop the region, starting with the some 120 bridges destroyed in the repeated conflicts. We leave Asawi's construction site and drive around to get more of a sense of the city now and the violent history here. Past a furniture shop with gold-painted armchairs and sofas. Passing the Happy Land Ferris Wheel and Amusement Park. So you can hear the children playing in the courtyard of this school, Al-Khalij school. And back in 2003, this was a key place in the war in Iraq. The first US divisions arrived in Fallujah on the 23rd of April 2003. They took over this school. Residents gathered outside the school walls, asking the Americans to leave, saying that they wanted to reopen the school for students. The protests grew large, and what happened next is contested. But ultimately, U.S. soldiers opened fire into the crowd, killing 17 people and wounding more than 70. That was the spark for further violence. Two battles ensued, and the conflicts that took place here marked a turning point in the war in Iraq between U.S. troops fighting loyalists of Saddam Hussein and an insurgency against the U.S. occupation of Iraq. The eve of battle. Footage filmed by the BBC in 2004 shows US Marines about to enter Fallujah. 
The colonel in charge prepares his troops to fight their way into the city on foot. The enemy has got a face. He's called Satan and he's in Fallujah. And we're going to destroy him. We go and meet one of the men who was fighting against the U.S. Dafar al-Obaidi welcomes us into his home. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. An imam in the local mosque, he opens with a small prayer before telling us how, in 2004, he organized militias to fight the Americans. We became big groups and we collect what we have from uh, weapons that we get at that time. During these shelling attacks, during the battles, what did the city sound like? What did it look like? He remembers the shelling was so intense it was hard to believe any of them would survive. These days, the neighborhood is totally different. Children are walking home from school unaccompanied, playing in the streets. Two small children are trying to ride a bi- an adult bicycle that's far too big for them. I'm an English teacher. We walk into a girls' school and meet English teacher Suad Mickey. She tells me about living under the extremist group ISIS when they took over in 2014 and the war to remove them. No food, bomb, military. Yes, terrible. I feel afraid all the time, especially when my children were so little. But now ISIS has gone and the city has relative calm. Mickey says her family is finally happier. Sometimes they walk along the city's new promenade on the Euphrates River. Her children are enjoying school and she is teaching again. You're teaching the next generation of Iraqis, of people from Fallujah. How do you see now the future for uh, Fallujah? For I hope it will be better. I hope. I hope it will be better. Do you feel like it will be better or you don't have trust in the future? No, I don't trust the future, but I hope. After years of conflict and instability, it's hard for her to believe that this peace will last. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Fallujah. In 1998, a young boy's parents decided to take him and move the family out of Iraq. He grew up to become a Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist living in the U.S. After the tough sanctions that first forced his family out, and then after 20 years of war, he decided to return to Iraq to see how much of his country was the same and what was different. On All Things Considered tomorrow, we'll speak with that photographer about what he discovered in the homeland that he left behind. To listen to that conversation, just turn on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play your member station by name. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed. Enjoy expanded content or connect to your favorite member station. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Hope you enjoyed today's weather because the sun's likely to take tomorrow off. For tonight, cloudy, breezy, falling just a few degrees to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, lots of clouds around. The chance of rain in the afternoon, breezy and mild, about 60 for a high. Friday should see some sunshine burning through the clouds, right about 53 degrees, and then in the mid-40s and low 50s this weekend. This is 90.9 WBUR, 49 degrees now in Boston. It's 6.30 and Marketplace is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Into the Woods. Coming to Boston direct from Broadway and with its Broadway stars to boot, two weeks only, now through April 2nd. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com.